What is your definition of education? Take a moment and settle on a definition that you like. Five years ago, I embarked on a journey that began with starting a non-profit organization. Part of this was three months of challenging and redefining various principles, assumptions, models, and the expected outcomes of broadly accepted practices. These redefinitions would then go on to form the cornerstone of this new organization's efforts. One of these was the definition of education. I want to start this Ask an Expert conversation with this definition. I believe it is, possibly without them consciously knowing it, the guiding philosophy of the organization Tashmir Ismail Seville has been tasked to lead. The definition I settled on is this. Education allows its holder or recipient the ability to see, explore, and pursue an alternative. The uneducated are locked into a single or limited opportunity to act because it's all they see. While an educated individual in the same situation is capable of seeing and therefore also pursuing multiple different actions. This redefinition has changed the mindset of many groups we have been able to share it with. They've understood that education can happen every day. It can have an immediate impact on their lives, and importantly, it isn't a certificate awarded in a ceremony many years into the future, although we're quick to insist this is a high-value pursuit. Holding this definition in mind and the idea of constantly challenging our current knowledge and beliefs, listen as Tashmir and I discuss three important opportunities to maximize impact. A quick warning, we're going to start with something your personal bias may initially reject, but keep on listening. The evidence tells us that just putting a mobile phone into someone in a, in a developing market, putting that phone in their hand amplifies their GDP per person by 1.2% because that phone is the conduit to the economy. It gives them access to job opportunities. It helps them to understand what is needed. It even helps you to deliver training to get people job ready. And so what that phone does is it helps us to monitor and nudge and encourage youth and take some of the burden away from the employer around the youth in that and giving the youth the tools through this digital delivery every week of training modules and nudges and rewards and gamification and making them feel like they're part of a bigger community can only do that through the phone. There's no other way in a national program to give a young person who's margin in a marginalized community the same sort of opportunity that the tertiary grad has in, in, in an urban center. So getting acceptance of this phone is hard because people's perceptions are difficult to shift. And this is the other thing that I think we struggle with is being evidence-led. And if we talk about preparing a nation for the for a fourth industrial revolution, which is already here, this phone is the start on that journey. You can learn how to do coding on a phone, on an app. So getting people digitally literate through their smartphone and consuming content through that, it just gives them a whole new tool to enter this 4IR economy. Do you hear the gold that exists in the strategy? A mobile device in every young person's hand is not just a delivery mechanism for training and development, often how it's been positioned in the past, but it's also a live data stream potential understanding and intelligence, a near direct view into the young people they are serving. The first point I want us to stress as we consider impact in its creation is data. And a really good first question to ask yourself is, where's your data? Where do you find it? Where do you get it? Where do you source it? While this is not a podcast about youth employment services specifically, yes, under Tashmir's leadership, in many ways embodies this conversation. 
their requirement, their need for, their insistence upon vetted, transparent, correct data guiding them into intelligent decision-making. And here's another reason why this is so important. You cannot stress enough how brilliant that is to help a company pivot and rearrange itself quickly before the damage is done and before too much is spent. And we throw money at a lot of things. And we think that throwing money at things fixes them. And it's all about the implementation and where it gets spent and how it gets spent. And you can you can cover a lot up with, we, you know, my marketing person gets very upset with me, but I call it lipstick on a pig. There's a lot of lipstick on a pig going on where if you have a really well-paid and well-trained marketing team, you can cover up a lot of the, the numbers and you can make the numbers look different. We have a business leader whose, whose talk I was watching that was talking about the amazing progress that had been made, but everything was talked about in percentage terms. And it was, oh, in housing, we've done this. If you have one house and you build 10 more, in percentage terms, you're saying that is what? A thousand percent improvement in housing. But the real numbers, are we challenging ourselves to say, are we getting bang for buck? It's rand over impact or it's number, you know, because sometimes you can talk about a number, but what is the, so we've put a thousand houses up or we've, we've done a thousand jobs or whatever it might be, but what is the impact of those? And I am not saying that yes has this right. So when you're asking me this, I'm talking about something that we are deeply concerned with. Today we're talking impact versus spend, impact over rand, impact over effort. And after hearing what we've just heard, I think now is a good time to begin questioning ourselves around correct use of data. It's also worthwhile to examine whether or not we are open to what this data might tell us. Are our efforts really making an impact? Are we really measuring the right things? And what might this say about us if someone with eyes to see begins to look at this data? But it goes further than just numbers in a document or database. Let me explain this way. Then there was a slight sophistication on top of that, which was a very particular focus on what was then termed base of pyramid. Uh, we at Gibbs termed inclusive business. Now, I had during my, my years in practice, in private practice, I had taken on a whole lot of UNISA courses just to keep my gray matter well oiled. And I did subjects from classical civilization and financial maths all the way through to development studies, um, just a very eclectic mix of subjects. And what struck me in the development literature is the enormous amounts of money for development projects across the African continent, billions. I mean, even in South Africa, we have initiatives that uh, take large amounts, hundreds of millions of rands of taxpayer money to subsidize programs in order to drive development. But the models that they're based on, the sustainability of those models is always in question. And this was something that really interested me when I saw uh, at that time, Time magazine did an incredible profile on CEMEX, which is a global multinational, uh, and a, a project in Mexico, a housing project in Mexico called Patrimonio Hoy. Really clever business model innovation by CEMEX to take the company into uh, low-income communities. They had a very cyclical 
bumpy route around global recessions and, 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 you know, when, when the global economy did well, CEMEX did well. And when things tanked, of course, and, and when government stopped spending on infrastructure. So CEMEX had this bumpy road and they thought if we start to enter low income communities, they're not as influenced by the vagaries of the economy and we could create baseline revenue in these low-income communities where we could start to sell volumes. And so CEMEX embarked on um, a strategy to try to target lower-income consumers. And in Mexico, having a home for a mother to hand down a home, a lot of parallels with South African society uh, in terms of inequality levels and poverty levels and prop issues with housing and infrastructure to service these communities. And CEMEX had the initial failure which was probably the best thing that could have happened to them. They tried to do the Unilever, Hindustan Unilever model of if we sachet something, if we put it into small packets, we can sell a lot of it because they, Unilever had discovered that Indians were paid weekly or daily. And so the big bottle would be an entire month uh, rather than allowing them to buy it by sachet. So Semex thought, well, that's the answer. And initially started to sell cement in little bags uh, in order for families to buy it at an affordable level. And they burnt their fingers terribly because they didn't, they didn't do customer centered design, which is what the, the name for it today, design thinking. How do you understand the problem that you're solving for a customer? How do you take the behaviors of a community, the anthropological study almost of society in order to design your business models for them? Uh, I mean, today it's a lot more popular than it was then, but CEMEX was one of the first companies where we saw published material on what that misunderstanding can cost you. So what CEMEX didn't realize is this was a patriarchal society. If you bought a small bag of cement, you were a small man. And uh, they, they signed a very dramatic declaration of ignorance that they knew nothing. And I think there's such power in starting with a clean slate and throwing out your old models because, you know, nobody, everybody is in love with their own ideas and throwing out old models is incredibly difficult for us to do. But they threw out the old models and said, if we want to get this right, we have to approach this with a humbleness in design that maybe we had it wrong. And how do we learn a new way of doing this? And so they came up with Patrimonio Hoy, which is an incredible ecosystem that they built around under, an understanding, a fundamental understanding that homes were not being built because people couldn't buy cement or afford cement. Homes were not being built because families couldn't see their way to years of investment. How would they save the money? How could they build incrementally? How could they keep their families together in that time? The financial literacy of understanding how you would put together a house was not there. And you know, in Mexico, it was, well, people are buying white goods every day. But there were payment plans that were four to six months long, and people could really understand the numbers around that. And so this idea of financial literacy, financial wellness, and that being a fundamental part of development, shifting the mindset of people on how they can manage their own numbers, really changes the intimidation factor and anxiety around development of people developing themselves. Isn't it remarkable how often we as human beings, without even realizing it, come riding into a situation, armor gleaming, a sword of righteousness waving above our heads, only to find a muted welcome and possibly even an uphill battle as we impose our self-titled incredible solution on a community or market. Customer-centered design, also known in colloquial terms as listening, 
changes this. As you know, listening is a two-way street, and part of this process allows the intended recipient of the solution or service or product the space and time for emotional and mental buy-in to develop. This in turn allows for cooperation during deployment, already cultivated channels for seeking feedback, which means focused execution and meaningful results. Customer-centered design is our opportunity number two, and it also comes with some questions. Do you really listen? Do you really know your customer or beneficiary? And can you prove it with data? I invite you to examine these questions with enthusiasm and energy. Challenge your teams to, and I'm certain you're going to find room for innovation and iteration. Here's opportunity number three. Very early in the process, we wrote to the World Bank. We'd seen some publications that they'd done of really groundbreaking frontier work around human behavior. Because we're starting to understand across the development space, whether it's in employment or financial inclusion, it's human behavior that we need to start to understand. We can build all sorts of models like Semix did initially around trying to, you know, micro uh, the bag of cement and, and get the cost down. But it's not always about the money. It's not always about the money you throw at things. Can we start to measure and learn how to shift behaviors rather than just looking at high level numbers? And so YES has got a very strong behavioral component, work with the World Bank, um, the ILO, numerous agencies that are doing frontier work. There's a brilliant outfit, Washington-based, called Solutions for Youth Employment, an arm of the World Bank that works on employment programs around the world. Youth unemployment is a problem everywhere. Of course, ours is, is probably the worst in terms of percentage of population. But they've said that the secret source to a good employment opportunity is correct matching. So if you put a young person with a natural um, inclination towards coding who might be an introvert but is, is, is a very um, – is a problem solver, and you put that young pers a person into a position where they have to be gregarious and retail-focused and selling – you know, my joke is, is selling hot pants to teenage girls. You know, this is a person who is not going to thrive in that role. So one of the things we do need to get right is understanding the devil is in the detail. You know, so there are a lot of programs out there, but what is the detail of it? Let's not ask ourselves how much money did the program spend? How many years was it in operation? What were the numbers? What we need to start to ask ourselves is how did they match? How did they deliver training? Were they going for behavioral shift? What were the impacts in the behavior? Because what you're describing are uh, behavioral aberrations, and those happen for a reason. So one of the things that we're spending a lot of time doing, and, and people need to understand and be patient with yes, because when you try to do something differently, it does take time to get it right. You have to have iterations, you have to experiment uh, before you come out with something that is, has got rigor. You keep failing fast in order to get that. And you also, you don't reinvent the wheel. So if you look at the network of partnerships that we've developed globally and locally with people who do this well, people, you, you know, yes, is born into a digital world. So we have to learn from the best in the digital space. So you'll find that a lot of our partners are in the digital space. So uh, we've got a meeting with IBM coming up. We have deep partnerships with Google, deep partnerships with Microsoft. We have this hub strategy, which is out in communities to build infrastructure to support these jobs and to drive the training that will support these jobs. And every single hub 
is driving digital programming. Because even in terms of the matching, it is these very clever algorithms that can help us to learn. So our iterations and learning are just amplified by AI. Uh, we've got a partnership with MIT and a group of scholars at MIT that are helping to build this algorithm that can understand what do you need to understand about a youth's profile to put them into the right job. So we're so we're so enhanced by the technology. So fourth industrial, at the same time that it does take away by disintermediating whole jobs, it's also opening up incredible channels for innovation. And the technology is what is allowing us to bridge that in the same way that it's allowing us to make better choices about who we put where. Here's what I hope you heard. Failure equals data. Success equals data. Results, whatever they are, offer learning and development. Failure can be a tough pill to swallow, but if your culture is set up for failing fast, it can be a wonderfully liberating experience that straps a rocket to one's developmental journey. In my world of trying to find simple answers to complex issues, just three things are needed for impact to be created and multiplied. Data, customer-centered design, and failing as fast as possible. These three areas of activity can create a virtuous cycle that allows you to multiply your impact exponentially. And the big takeaway for me here, always use complexity-smashing, easy-to-digest definitions and models. Tashmir is clearly passionate about YES and its potential. Before visiting with her, I had some doubts about YES. These were informed by years and years of seeing new programs and organizations arrive with major fanfare and pronouncements of intended impact only to see these, a few years later, putting lipstick on the pigs of their own making. YES seems to have good, intelligent leadership that are focusing on what I believe is going to offer them the greatest opportunity for success, data and its ability to inform and augment delivery. This has been a bit of a different Ask an Expert podcast. Usually we're asking experts direct questions in your behalf. And on that note, do you have a question Google can't adequately answer? Does your question require nuanced consideration and thought that bridges disciplines and may even take on the status quo? Ask it on your favorite social media platform using the Ask an Expert hashtag and we'll find an expert voice to help you find your way through it. My name is Gareth Armstrong and it has once again been a pleasure.